It, it really did, and I like to say it was a nation of wolves. There were no meek personalities. I mean, everybody spoke their piece, and that's the way it worked. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Well, welcome today. I am on the phone with uh, Howard Coker out of Jacksonville. Howard is a longtime trial lawyer and a former president of the Florida Bar and a former president of the Florida Justice Association. And he has tried literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, civil jury trials. Howard, thank you for making yourself available. My pleasure. Absolutely. Well, uh, where I would like to start is actually uh, career-wise. At the time we're recording this, you're uh, in your very early 70s. You look great. You look like you're in your early 60s. But uh, the question I have wondered about is, why are you still doing this uh, at 73? Um, I can honestly say, and this sounds kind of trite, but... I love what I do. Um, the bottom line of it is it has been, for me, uh, I've enjoyed every moment of it. Uh, that's not to say that sometimes they're in the grind, but the truth is I like, I like trying cases. I like being involved with lawyers, and I don't think I'm much of a sit-at-home kind of guy. Yes, yes. Has there, uh, you know, for, for people that are deep in the grind, has there ever been a season where you didn't like it so much? Yeah. Um, there were a number of years where we had a very big toxic tort case. So it's called Hips Road. And um, there, there was a time when I thought I might have to mortgage my house um, to keep going in the litigation. And um, that was tough. I mean, the rest of it has been a cakewalk compared to that. Yes. I, I sadly can relate, not the same kind of case, but I remember a time where I was feeling like I was getting close to the end of my financial rope. Yeah. I mean, well, let me put it to you this way. When your house is paid for and you go home and you sit on the patio of your wife and say, we may have to do this all over again. That's not a good feeling. I don't care how much you love what you do. Yes. Um, what what uh, what was that like? It was gut wrenching. I mean, we as that we'd crossed the Rubicon and we were going to have to keep marching. And I wanted to keep marching, um, but I didn't want to subject my family to any financial hardships. But it was one of those deals where you couldn't have your cake and eat it, too. And so we marched on for another two years. Um, and unlike a civil action, the movie, uh, we were successful and we prevailed and, and finally ended it. But it was a long four years. Yes. Uh, learning lessons out of that experience for you? Well, I think this. When times get tight, um, you can confirm who your really true partners are. Mm. Uh, the people that are willing to sacrifice 
and the people that are in it for, quote, team purposes as opposed to individual purposes. And those are hard lessons, but they're good ones to learn. And uh, I will say this, I was fortunate. My partners were all team players, and um, we got through it. We remained partners for another 20 years until they became of counsel. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. My, I've, I've heard before every partnership gets along great when there's plenty of money, but once there are money issues, it sure is a lot harder to be good partners. Um, I look at it this way. Um, when times get tough, and fortunately that's only been a couple of times, but you find out those who are willing to stay and fight and those who are willing to cut and run. And it, I think it's a good cleansing experience. Well, uh, you have had some longtime partnerships, and I know your practice, how long has your actual law firm in one iteration or another been around? Since 1976. We started the firm May 10th, 1976. What's, what's the key to making it in a long-time partnership? Because it seems like, in my experience, you know, the, the finances change, the roles change, people's desires change. How do you, through all of that change, keep a long-term partnership? Well, you have to value the individuals around you. You have to be consistent. And I don't think that if you have problems in your personal life that you can let those affect how you operate in the business setting. And fortunately for me, I had two very, very capable individuals who, when the load needed to be shared, they shared it. Um, and when the profits were good, they participated in them. So it was, it was a fair deal all the way around. Yes. What are the qualities you think make the best law partners? Truthfulness, hard work, um, an even personality. Certainly not mine. Um, but <laughs> you need somebody uh, to balance you. To to. And that's exactly right. It, there has to be an overall firm balance. And there are those of us who think that, like to think that we've mellowed in our old age, but certainly there was a time when we were difficult to handle. There's no question about that. And you need, you need partners who can put your feet back on the ground. And I was lucky enough to have two of those guys. I'd love to figure out uh, who was was the peer so not not a not someone who's significantly older than you more of a peer they could be a little older a little younger but what peer most shaped you as a lawyer there was a cross examiner by the name of dick moore who i thought was probably one of the best cross examiners i've seen and overall mentorship um there was a a gentleman that gave me my first job, a fellow named Mal Kirby, and uh, he had a tremendous hand in it. Yeah, I still, I still have his his desk. If that tells you anything. 
it does tell me something. I still have the briefcase of my mentor, so I get the concept. Is that the Kirby of the old Hal Kirby firm? That's exactly who it was. Hal Kirby, Montgomery, D'Alto, Dean, and Hallows was the name of the firm. Yeah, amazing amount of lawyers that I've interviewed that have come out of that. Uh, everyone from federal judge uh, Dalton to Sammy Ketchtori to just that firm really uh, really had a strong foundation for a lot of people in Florida. It, it really did. And I like to say it was a nation of wolves. There were no meek personalities. I mean, everybody spoke their piece and, and that's the way it worked. Did you just say a nation of wolves? It, a nation of wolves. I mean, it was some strong-minded people. There were no sheep. And uh, it really was a great trial firm. Great. <laughs> Bob, Bob Montgomery came out of it. Uh, I mean, it was just, I mean, everywhere you turned in that organization, both past and present at the time, uh, there were great lawyers that had come from it, great trial lawyers. What was the leadership structure with all, when I hear Nation of Wolves, I'm like, well, how do you, how does a pack of wolves govern themselves? Well, there's always an alpha. I mean, that's just the way it is. And the thing that I mean by a strong uh, Nation of Wolves is the fact that if somebody didn't agree with leadership, it wasn't like they just took their bags and went into the night. I mean, if you disagreed, you were entitled to your say-so, which as a young lawyer, even though you don't have the breadth of experience, you at least have the opportunity to say what you think, which in a lot of firms doesn't happen very often. I know you're going to want to name a bunch of people, but let's assume you had to play by the rules of you get to pick one person who's the best trial lawyer you've ever seen in the courtroom? Bob Montgomery was one that I'd seen in a courtroom, and he was a tremendous lawyer, tremendous trial lawyer. The other um, that I had a tremendous amount of respect for, and he was a hell of a trial lawyer, is uh, former Supreme Court Justice Ray Ehrlich. He was a lawyer's lawyer. He could do more with cross-examination, and he, he could always, the thing that fascinated me about Ray was he could always ask the why question on cross-examination. You know, we're told never ask a question you don't know the answer to, but he he would ask the why question. I can still remember him pulling his glasses off and very eloquently just saying, well, why? And I don't know how he always got the right answer, but every time I saw him, he did. It was fascinating. Do you uh, are, are are you willing to take the risk and ask the why? Not always, but you know, sometimes do you ask why? Some, even? Sometimes it and it depends on who the witness is I'm dealing with. There are some people you don't want to ask the why question. That's for sure. But there are others. What what made uh, Bob Montgomery? so good in the courtroom? His presence. just had a commanding air about him that told you he knew he was right and he could convince you that he was right. 
Do you think that's uh, nature or nurture? I don't know. It may be a bit of both. Um, I think you either you either have a quality or an air about you that gives off confidence in what you're doing. But I also think that can be developed. Um, you know, I always say, be who you are unless you're an ass, and then you need to be somebody else. <laughs> That's funny. Let me ask you, staying on the kind of being who you are, um, for w when you see someone who does not have that kind of natural confident air, you know, like I can think of, of Mr. Montgomery, like I get it. I really do get what you're saying. Uh, and I think of someone like David King, just the, the presence, like, like feels like from birth, they were given yeah. a voice, a body, a look that just, it just kind of works for them. Let's go to the person who doesn't necessarily instantly have that. In other words, they don't, you know, they, they don't have a perfect voice. They're feeling a little insecure. Uh, what advice do you give someone like that to gain more confidence? Well, the first thing I look for is talent can be developed, but you have to have the heart for the battle. Um, you can't be a pseudo trial lawyer. You either have to have the heart for the battle, and then after that, the skill level can be developed. Um, that's kind of been my approach to it. I can take an individual who really wants to be a good trial lawyer, and I, I don't know that I can make them a great trial lawyer, but I can make them a good trial lawyer. What, what does that mean, have a heart for the battle? What do you mean when you say that? What I mean when you say that is that you really and truly believe that you can win the case and that you want to try the case. There are plenty of people who approach cases like math problems, um, and they're what I call shadow boxers. They look great until you get them in the ring, and then they get pummeled pretty quick. Um, so I'm looking for somebody who has the heart for the battle and who really and truly is hungry. And you can take that person and make them into a very fine yeah. You know, when I think about it, uh, and I'm curious your feedback on this, when I think of the heart for the battle, like I think of you have to be willing to put yourself out there where you may lose, where you may, you, you may get rejected. You, you may get attacked. You, you just, there's, you're willing to take the risk that it could get messy and you've decided I'm, I'm still going in knowing all of that. Uh, that's kind of what I think. What do you think? Oh, I think you're dead on the money. I mean, it's, it's knowing you're going up the hill. I guess what is it, the old John Wayne adage? Courage is, is being scared to death but saddling up anyway. You know, uh, how many trials are you going on? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, it's way over 200. It averages probably five to eight a year for 45 years, so whatever that number comes out to.
Um, still get nervous? I still get nervous. Yes. And I got And I'm usually the one picking a jury, and I'm always nervous before that. And there's never a trial that I don't learn something from. And I keep a yellow pad, uh, and the last page of the yellow pad is where I write down the things that I would have changed. And sometimes the list is long, and sometimes it's short. What do you do to keep your, over the years, and, and I'm professionally right now, what do you do to kind of keep your mental health strong? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what do you do to keep yourself? Because like when I think of just my own journey, you know, when you're representing people and they're dealing with tragedies and honestly, we win, but we also lose sometimes, you know, what, what are the things that you do to keep your mental health stable and strong? That's an interesting question. I've never thought about it. I, I think, for me, laughter is a great cure-all. Um, and I'm, I like to laugh. I like to be with my friends, um, socialize, and that kind of thing. But they're, you're right. I mean, I tried a case for a lady that, an escalator case, lost it. And, I mean, I remember coming back to my office and just weeping like a child because uh, I felt like it wasn't a question of how much money she should have gotten. It was a question of she should have gotten something, and I didn't prevail. And, I mean, yeah, I guess if I had a string of those, it could get to me, but fortunately I haven't had that happen. What 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 are the things that over the years when you have faced a loss that you've done to kind of help it from help get out of the funk? You know what I'm saying? Like I can relate to weeping, you know, uh, what now, what have you done? I can, I can say this. The first thing I do is see what the next trial is, um, because. If you ever get beaten to the point where you don't have the heart for the battle, then you're lost. Um, I believe the best cure is to get back in there and do it again. Um, there's going to be an anomaly here and there, and that's what I view those cases as. Um, but by and large, you know, it's sort of like, I always say it's like I'm a late major league baseball player. If I can hit for average, I play. If I don't hit for average, I don't play. And I think that's the same way with trial work. If you're winning 80 90% of the time, then you're doing a lot of things right. If you're not, and you're losing 80 or 90% of the time, you need to find another occupation. Um, hopefully those words are gentle on someone uh, and encouraging to some others. Uh, tell me... I want I want to run through you as a leader for a second. You know, when I look at your history, you led the Florida Bar, you led the FJA, or at the time it would have been um, the Academy. You know, you led your law firm. You're clearly a leader. Okay, so the question isn't is Howard Coker a leader? It would be which of the leadership roles you've held in life has been the hardest one 
Well, I think the hardest one is being a father. Tell me if if you were to take away every bit of humility, but share the good parts that you've learned that you believe are critical to being a good dad, what would they be? If you stripped it down, I would say, again, honesty. Um, it's a two-way street. I demanded it of my children, and I made sure they got it from me. Uh, encouragement, uh, certainly uh, getting your children to try to do in different things, and uh, just being there uh, when they have a problem or, uh, you know, just someone they can talk to. Uh, and it's not an easy role. Uh, and it's a role I think you have to be very consistent in. Um, and there are times we as parents fail in that role. But I think the real test is, are you trying at all times to do what's best for your children? Hmm. Do you uh, Are you the kind of guy that wrestles with... Um, personal guilt where you just, you feel guilty or are you a person that generally you just, that's not really something you traditionally put on yourself? Well, I would say answer that in two parts. There have been a couple of times in my life where I've done something that was stupid. Um, just a or, couple, just a couple well, really? Let me say this. At my age, there's just a couple I can remember, okay? Uh, uh, the bottom line of it is that we've all done that, and those are the mistakes. Now, I am generally a forgive and forget type of person. As I tell my law partners when we have a problem in a case, I always say, listen, I'm not interested in placing blame. I'm interested in curing it to get a result. So I don't linger or hold grudges, um, not too much. Now, every now and then when I'm really upset, I have a saying that, you know, I forgive every 50 years and today's not the day. Um, but fortunately, that only applies to a couple of people. <laughs> um what what is the uh your I, I i i was going to wait as long as i could but i can only wait so long uh your wife fran uh i loved her uh she was a very uh she hit me at a stage in my career where i was uh, very influential and very insecure and, uh, and she kind of taught me focus groups, but mostly she just loved me well. Do you know what I'm saying? She just loved me well. Uh, what, a, what an amazing lady. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and I'm very sorry we lost her. But she, I will say this as a personal compliment, she always thought you had the talent and the art for the battle. Well, she was very supportive. Um, walking through that, the which I know was just so weighty and so heavy, how'd you do it? 
when I lost her, there was a period of about five years where it was pretty dark. Um, and it was tough. And, but, you know, I always told people that um, before I lost her, I could talk about pain. But after I lost her, when I talked about pain, I could feel it. And uh, in an odd sort of way, it made me a better lawyer, but it was a high price to pay. Mm. Well, I th it's like one of those, I don't think any of us would sign up for the classroom of pain, and yet there is a piece in particular when you represent people who are have suffered immeasurable loss that we wouldn't want it but it is an asset in a really weird twisted kind of way it is and i recognize that it's weird and twisted but it's a fact i i've heard about you that you know you're almost looking for a reason to try a case that you, you're not looking for a reason to not try it, that you love trying cases, and is that an accurate read? Yes, I don't surround myself with negative people. I mean, tell me why we can win the case. Don't tell me why we can lose it. Let's talk about the, the lead-up to trial. Um, you know, the the trial prep, you are you are definitely known to be someone who, you know, really does the little things to prepare so that you're really ready to go. What are some of the things that people that haven't tried cases with you, they could be habits, they could be techniques, organizational things, uh, ways of managing your energy, uh, whatever they are, what are some of the things you do in the preparation process to make you better? Well, I think, look, I think it's probably intensity is number one. Um, and I've always been a competitor since I was a child playing um, sports. And it gets down to wanting to win. The, the organization, I mean, I am extremely detailed uh, at every level organizationally from a, I mean, the truth is I could give you my trial notebook and you would have every question for every witness that I am handling. The only thing you would have to do is after cross be ready on the redirect. So I prepare very, very high level. Do you write out all your questions? Yes, I'm still old school in that. I, I, I write out every question. Um, and then, of course, during the cross-exam, if I'm on direct, I have every question. If I'm, you know, the cross gives me something else, then I use those and redirect. But I have a format, um, and it is ready to go 100%. Like I say, somebody else could read the questions. They might not be able to deliver them the same way, but they could read the questions. You're complex because I know you like to hunt big game, but I also hear you like gardening. What's up with the gardening? Tell me about that. The gardening for me is, and I started this a few years ago, 
Um, and I don't garden roses or things like that. I grow tomatoes and uh, cucumbers and um, squash, uh, peppers and things like that. And it, for me, uh, it started off as kind of an experiment, but it grew into what really is a therapy. Um, when I come home in the evenings, if I can spend an hour just doing something in the garden and my wife and I do it together, um, then it really relaxes me and kind of brings me back into the real world. Mm. I want to talk to you about uh, what I have coined on my notes is like, I'm going to call it Coker 2.0, okay? And, and what I mean is there was this point where just from the outside looking at your firm, it looked like you were in the last season of your firm. I'm going to guess eight years ago. I'm totally guessing. Okay. And now I look at your firm and you're loaded with talent, young lawyers, talented trial lawyers, and you've grown to, I think, over 20 lawyers and it just seems like, and you can correct me if I'm not saying it correctly, like there was a version 1.0 and now there's a version 2.0 and now you're in Coker Law 2.0. Yeah, um, I think you've surmised it correctly. It was about, actually about 10 years ago um, where we were like six or seven lawyers and I went to my partners and said, look, this is not the way I want to go out. I don't want to die on the vine. Um, I want to assemble the best trial team in Northeast Florida. And my partners said, as long as, you know, we're part of it, we're for it. So uh, we started and uh and we've done it i mean i i would stack us up depth wise against any firm in northeast florida so yeah it was purposeful but it was also something that i just wanted to do i didn't want to just go off into the sunset uh, that's not the way i am well uh Howard, now I'm going to transition, uh, and I we're going to we're going to do two sections. If you still got some time, and and one is I, I like to do a word association game, okay? And and basically, I'll say out a word or a concept, and you just give me one word, your one word response. There's obviously no wrong answers, but uh, you know, I, I the example could be I could say, um, you know. Your your partner Steve Wattrell and you would say a, a word, uh, and I'm I have some funny words because I've locked some good miles with that man. He's a great man. But uh, so so word association first first one is Perry Mason. Brilliant in the courtroom. Brilliant. Florida bar. Uh, an overseer. Jury trial. Heaven. Florida Supreme Court. Well-intentioned. Depositions. Painful. Injustice. Intolerable. 
Justice. Satisfaction. Success. Credibility. That was fun. I could have kept yeah. going. I could have kept going. I want to get practical in this section. What I try to do is um, look for shorter answers on very practical subjects. And so it's just wisdom that you have. So the first area I would love to start on is uh, what you've already mentioned, and it clearly is something you're known for, jury selection. What, what if you had to give a, a short series of just quick nuggets on jury selection that you've learned in the trenches? Body language, um, develop better listening skills than your question skills, um, and watch for any little movement um, that may give you a clue as to what a juror's thinking. Dealing with uh, an arrogant judge. Well... I try to be deferential to all members of the court, but when it gets to the point where it's intolerable, I let them know it's intolerable. Dealing with uh, recalcitrant, difficult, just royal pain in the butt defense counsel or just opposing counsel. It doesn't have it doesn't have to be defense counsel. Opposing counsel that are difficult. Um. I try to treat them professionally, but what I really try to do is not run down rabbit trails with them. Uh, usually those kind of people create diversions and they just impede your project process toward the uh, finish line. Opening statement. Um, setting the tone for the case. What do you see most uh, common in terms of just poor opening statements? What are some of the things you most see? Well, what I see a lot of now are PowerPoint uh, presentations. Um, and to me, one of the most boring things you can do is regurgitate what is on your PowerPoint. You have to use it to supplement the story you're telling. What are some of the most effective uh, uses of the PowerPoint that you've seen? And by that, I mean, I, you, what I hear you say is don't just put up a bunch of bullet points and then say what it says. What are some things you've seen that are effective? Visuals. I mean, graphs, charts, calendars, anything that makes it more interesting and yet, at the same time, uh, you're basically, you have audio learning, you have visual learning, you're combining the two in order for each juror to have a better picture of your case. Direct examination of an expert. Well, I would say this, direct examination of an expert again goes back to preparation. 
Um, you should know all of the points that you want to bring out with the expert. You should have taken the time to go over with the expert all of those points, and you should know what the expert is going to say. Um, and that's why I don't leave anything to hit or miss. I have everything that I want covered, um, whether you call it a crutch or whatever, but I have it on paper. If you have to make a choice between a longer direct examination to be sure you've covered everything or a shorter direct examination to be sure it's interesting and you had to make one of those two choices, which would you choose? Uh, it's my nature, I guess. I would uh, make sure I covered everything. But I would try to split it up, take a break, do whatever to try to keep it interesting. But I would not sacrifice uh, the overall testimony in the, for the sake of brevity. Um, let's talk about younger lawyers arguing to a judge, because I really think, I think sometimes the mistake, um, lawyers that have been doing it a lot longer, we share, uh, how to argue to a judge, but really we're, we're doing it from our seat where we already have some level of credibility with the court, not always, but, you know, oftentimes, and it's a lot, in my opinion, it's just a lot harder when you have no background and no experience and no gray hair and, you know, all that stuff. So for the younger lawyers, what advice would you give on, on how to effectively argue in front of a judge? I would say this, the battle is not won in a day. Again, it goes back to being consistent and being prepared. The court over time certainly recognizes who's shooting them straight and who's shooting them off the cuff. So it's a credibility contest, basically. I mean, the bottom line is if you've told the court the truth in the past and you're telling the court the truth in the present, I mean, you've got a chance over a period of time to be someone that is trusted by the court, to be honest. And I don't think you can win it in one hearing. Let's flip the script for a second to uh, the other side. I know you're a plaintiff's lawyer. The great defense lawyers that you've seen over the years, the ones that um, you and I both know, we see their name, we're not happy. You know, we're it's they're, they're going to be professional. They're going to be nice. But ultimately, they're not they wouldn't be our choice in the courtroom because we think they're, you know, the most skilled adversaries. What do you see the best defense lawyers doing? The capable defense lawyers, um, for me, the most difficult ones are the ones that are the most honest and transparent. I mean, who say, look. I can't get the money to settle this case. I know it's a good case. My job is to try to hold the damages down. I can't be mad at anybody for that, uh, as opposed to somebody who says, oh, your case is terrible, uh, and I know they're not telling the truth. Um, so the, the capable ones are very realistic. They give me the most trouble. Um, the ones that, you know, just are straightforward. What do you think is the key to good storytelling? That's a great question. I I think 
so much goes into good storytelling. Um, it's got to be a presence. It's got to be of interest. Uh, it's got to be um, colorful. Um, and it has to be sincere. This is completely uh, not practical, but if if you're celebrating, what does the night of celebration look like for Howard Coker? You've gotten a good jury verdict back. What's 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 that look like? Well, it can range on a really big verdict. It might mean Ruth Chris, um, but a lot of times after backslapping and and clapping is over. I mean, for me, what it'll mean is I'll fix a good bourbon and be ready for the next day. Uh, how many hours of sleep do you get a night? You know, that's that's another interesting question. I, I've always heard that as you got older, you sleep less. Um, but I seem to require more sleep, and I wind up going to bed at an earlier hour. Um, a lot of times I go to bed by 9, 9.15. And then I'm up five thirty, six o'clock. So I do require a little more sleep than I used to. Um, what are some routines that you've taken up in your lifetime that you're like, these are good routines? You know, these these have been helpful over the years. Um, well, I say this, people may laugh, but diet, um, I guess over the last... 15 years, I've lost about 25, 30 pounds, and I'm still trying to lose more. Um, but I find, and I, I am primarily on a plant-based diet, um, I find that that gives me more energy. Um, it certainly has changed my blood work. Um, and I try, I try to get routine amounts of sleep. Um, and... I'd like to get more exercise, um, but I get as much exercise as I can. That's good. Um, as much as I hate hearing that on the plant-based diet, I know it to be true. I just, uh, I love me some meat. Uh, I, I'm stuck with that because that's the hardest thing for me because it works best for me, but my wife, she loves steak. So it's sometimes when I'm having... Uh, a vegetable platter and she's eating a steak and baked potato and salad, I wonder about whether or not I should be weak. <laughs> All right. I ask uh, everybody I've had the privilege to talk to the same uh, two questions. And uh, the first is to a group of lawyers that are in the first, you know, five years or so of their career, they're 25 to 35. If you were to give that kind of group, some advice, and you had to pick a topic, what what would you tell them? I would talk about work ethic. That I believe that if you work hard, um, clients and finances follow, and that there's no substitute for it. you got to pay a price. Uh, nobody's an instant hit. Uh, it is it's truly a business where hard work pays off. That's good. Uh, second group is basically uh, 
uh, folks 45 to say 50, uh, they're, they're established in their career, um, but they still have time for a 2.0. They still have a lot of years left. What advice would you give them? Well, the first advice I'd give someone at that age is, do you like what you're doing? Because if you don't, you still have time to make a transition. Uh, the second advice I would give someone like that is, assuming they already have skills, they should spend time refining them, getting better at the, what they do, um, be it cross-examination, be it opening statement or voir dire. Um, I assume when someone gets to that stage, they're not a flounderer. They're a person that has the ability to have substance. So I, I hear, first, be sure this is what you still want to do. And if it is, then be sure you're continuing to grow, even if you're successful at that season. Exactly. And I would say another element of it is don't let an outside activity divert you to the point that you're not doing the job, the best job you're capable of. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, people get caught up in different uh, things, whether it's hobbies or whatever else. Um, sometimes I see trial lawyers who I know have talent, but they just don't have heart for the battle anymore. And it's because they have found something else that they like better. Now, it may not pay as well, but their mind is there instead of on the subject in hand. And your, your thoughts, if I'm hearing you, is when you get there, either recommit or move on to something different. Exactly. Yeah. So what is, uh, if I were to land this plane anywhere, I just would want to ask you before I hang up, what's the next 10 years look like for Howard Coker? You know, I can tell you, I take that in increments. Um my commitment to my law firm is that I will look at it again when I'm 75. Um, and then if I feel strong enough and capable enough and uh, I don't have any illnesses or sickness, then I may try to go to 80. Um, I just am going to do it until I, I don't want to be a burden on anybody. I'm going to do it until I don't feel I'm doing it capably, and then I'm going to get out. Yeah. I, I, I look at kind of what you're doing and I see someone who is highly engaged and very stimulated, but I also see you uh, living a great life and uh, living a full life with adventure and friends and uh, trips and hobbies. It, it looks to me like uh, you are doing it all right now. Is that... My life, my life is very, very full. If I had to describe it, I'd say my plate runneth over. Um, yeah. It, it is, uh, I mean, I couldn't be more blessed or more fortunate. Uh, I have good people, I have great friends, uh, I have family, and I have help. So I'm, I count myself as a lucky one. Yeah. Well, uh, Howard, I count myself lucky to uh, have spent the past hour and a half with you, and uh, I don't take for granted your time, and I really do 
uh, appreciate your candor. Uh, I appreciate your wisdom because we all need more wisdom on behalf of, you know, everyone. Thanks for all you've done.